It's the retailers who today are willing to try and fail that will end up winning the battle. I'm Matt Newberg, founder of Hungry. And I'm Amran Answer, founder of Food Hack. And together, we're the hosts of The Feed. On today's episode of The Feed, we're talking with Phil Stanger from Knack Group, the automation partner for Takeoff Technologies, which was recently dubbed a technology pioneer in the grocery micro-fulfillment space by the World Economic Forum. Micro-fulfillment is a disruptive new technology that reduces labor and last-mile delivery costs associated with online grocery by creating small automated warehouses on the backs of existing retail stores. We cover everything from consumer shopping preferences during the pandemic to Amazon's suburban strip mall grocery strategy. Hope you enjoy it. So I want to kick off first with a question about the European and the US markets. Uh, Pre-COVID, UK has led the change in the grocery space, online grocery space, with about 7% online penetration pre-COVID. That's almost double that of US. France is just behind the UK. There were 5,000 click and drive grocery locations. Can you speak to why Europe has historically been ahead of the US? What inspiration Takeoff Knapp drew from that innovation that led to the current solution? Sure. It's, uh, first of all, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, I think it's an interesting note that uh, Korea actually outpaces both markets. I think they're over 10% adoption rate for e-commerce right now. And we've been operating in that e-commerce grocery space for the last five years, approximately. So uh, they definitely lead the paces. But I, I think the uh, the short answer to a very long, uh, a longer answer that would be required to, to be, let's say, thorough would be how do population density behavior of transportation in Europe, largely uh, public transportation versus uh, personal vehicles, um, a much more frequent shopping uh, uh, history. In the U.S., you see about 1.2 shop visits per week. In Europe, people, uh, I know particularly in Austria, you can see them shopping for groceries almost on a daily basis, for instance. Uh, so you have a different type of shopping experience. And, uh, you know, there's a death of small grocery shops within walking distance. So I think that's why you're seeing uh, let's say the European adoption rate outpacing what the U.S. market and the Canadian market have seen thus far before the COVID situation. And so let's, let's look at the U.S. right now. I mean, we have two kind of secular trends going on here. You have just grocery as a category that's booming. We, you know, when, when COVID first hit, March grocery sales grew, you know, over 3x from the year prior. And then on top of that, penetration of online grocery thanks to you know instacart and other players uh has has grown you know that penetration has grown from four and a half percent last year to about double that i think i'm seeing overnight um we just set a consecutive record of 6.6 billion dollars of online grocery spend in may which is up 24 percent from the month prior um it's been reported that half of, over half of U.S. consumers are using online grocery and about one in every five of them are first-time shoppers. So Instacart's hired on over half a million new shoppers and its CEO said it saw the, the same amount of growth that it was expecting to see in two to four years and two to four weeks. So what is happening here? Do you think this shift is, is permanent? And what is the conversation like you're what are the conversations you're seeing or you're having with various grocers um right now at this moment i think there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future holds um 
I don't necessarily believe that we will return back to pre-COVID shopping behavior. Um, and I, I believe it's, it's opinion largely of the retailers, the grocery retailers, that, that, that indeed is the case. The question remains, what does the landscape look like from an adoption perspective? There's been a generational shift in, in, in shopping behavior occurring the last, the last few years, last five years particularly uh, in North America, but we still had a long way to go because people were just accustomed to doing things a certain way. And it wasn't until you had a situation like a, like a COVID situation where it forced you to try something and do something different, right? Uh, I, think you, I think your adopters are, are largely probably the millennial Gen Xers who have living these increasingly busy lives, um, are comfortable with technology. And it was hard for the traditional grocery shopper to uh, say, uh, do something different because that's just what you're accustomed to and used to. Um, and you don't really know anything different. And you know, I've spoken to numerous family members and friends who, you know, have got a chance to experience the online great grocery convenience and are willing to, let's say, move forward with that. Maybe not for all their purchases, but will definitely become part of their shopping behavior moving forward. Um, so I think that when we see adoption, you have to consider it's not just delivery, it's also click and collect and, and, and that service. We took a five-year increase in projection and then we're going to be, I'd say, plus 10% adoption in the North American grocery market for e-grocery. Um, that presents a whole other set of challenges, obviously, for this market infrastructure-wise. Um, you know, when uh, back in, it was, it was 1918, I believe, when Piggly Wiggly came up with the original idea of grocery shopping, having the consumer do the picking and the delivery, right? It was a really ingenious idea. Um, now we have a shift back to the retailers being responsible for the picking and the delivery to the consumers and uh, in a very competitive landscape where prices everything in the grocery space and margins are razor thin um, it presents a very significant challenge to retailers how do you maintain customer satisfaction and not degradate uh, erode your uh, number of consumers are shopping at your store so you have to offer the service uh, in, in addition to the traditional brick and mortar shopping experience, but how do you do it in a, in a way that's profitable, right? Um, now that you have the paper, the picking and the, and the delivery, and even with the fees that are being collected from people uh, such as an Instacart, um, you're not covering the, the, the cost, especially when it's such a competitive space, as I mentioned earlier. So you have to find alternative ways to, uh, to pick more efficiently, be more productive, squeeze more production out of that, that, that retail square footage, as well as solving for last mile costs. And I think that when traditionally large central fulfillment centers are, are, are very productive um, and they have their place in the world, but when you want that two to four hour delivery window that we are gonna become, let's say rather comfortable with and expecting, you're gonna to have to think outside the box and do something different uh, to solve for that challenge and make money. Yeah, it kind of resonates with what we heard from Alex Cancer in the last uh, podcast. He was talking about the restaurant delivery apps and how they tend, they used to be used by millennials pre-COVID. And then during the uh, pandemic time, uh, you know, parents and, and more of the older generation started using them. And now that's actually one of the strongest segments. I think, I think that's why what he said. So now it's just a whole nother uh, segment of consumers are able to, to use delivery applications. And 
is that sort of the same thing you're seeing in uh, the grocery section as well? Is that the older generation are starting to, to order? Yeah, I think there's, there's some really great products out there with, with really reasonable UI. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it will get better. I think there will always be a gap in technology, uh, particularly with previous generations. I mean, I, I have young, young children. It's amazing how fast they learn how to operate an iPhone or an iPad, for instance, right? It's, it's mind blowing, but I put that same product in the hands of my parents and it takes, you know, 10X for me to teach them the same functionality as my, as my 24 month old. Right. So, uh, it, it's, it's quite crazy. So, so I, I think, yes, it will get easier and we will find a ways to uh, make it uh, more simplified. Maybe, maybe not just an app, but maybe, maybe they're just comfortable with picking up the phone and talking to somebody. I, I don't know. I mean, we, we got to think outside the box and you got to be able to, uh, accommodate multiple types of, of consumer. Right. Um, it'd be back, back to the restaurant conversation, you know, about, you know, they're using more of that. You know, the bigger question I have for, for everybody is what is the landscape of, of grocery going to look like in the future? I mean, we traditionally in North America eat out a lot more than other parts of the world. I think that, uh, it's upwards of like 55, 60% of our, of our eating is done through either, uh, eating out of quick service restaurants. And now what you're seeing with the COVID situation is that you've shifted consumer buying behavior to do grocery shopping, not because they wanted to, but they had to. Restaurants were closed um, in some parts of the world. Um, and it was not convenient to do the takeout. It's just sometimes not, it's not the same experience, right? It's, um, so what you're seeing is now Americans are, are reverting back to a, an old way of doing things, which was doing more meal prep at home. So that also compounds the, the issue for, for grocers how are you going to handle the increased volume in your stores and also the increased number of people who are going to use uh, home delivery or click and collect services, you know, resulting in potential further congestion, degraded uh, experience in the stores. And, you know, then, then it comes to quick start restaurants. How do you incorporate them into the equation as well? Do you potentially see more collaborations between grocery retailers and quick service restaurants, meal kitting companies, things like that? try and offer, uh, let's say, both uh, services at one single point. Yeah, we actually covered that, I think, on, a, on another episode. And that meal kits, are, uh, restaurants are working with grocers to do meal kits and send those out. And, and that's all growing in terms of the grocery delivery side. I, I had a question building upon that. What, what are the key issues that these small groceries are, are facing? Well, what is it that makes their current pick and pack method um, so inefficient that, that you guys have made a solution for? Yeah, I think um, in the current pick and pack method, it's even, even if you have a retailer that's doing the picking themselves, you still have to go up and down the aisle scurrying. So let's say they're more productive than a, uh, a, a third-party application, a third-party picker, for instance. Now, obviously, there's, there's supporting technology behind third-party picking to, to better uh, locate items, but you still can't compete with the fact that an automation space, you know, I could send a article to a picker every five seconds approximately, right? It's just a productivity rate that you can't experience um, when you're walking the aisles up and down because of the, the travel time from product to product um, and, the, and the variability of, of, the, of the order profile. You know, everyone um, has their certain things they like to buy. You're not, you're not, you can't really necessarily pick in the same pattern every single time because it doesn't necessarily work that way. But um, that's, that was really what drove, um, automation previously and when, when things started for us in, in Europe and Asia 
Uh, and then, you know, the issue was the, the last mile, uh, same day delivery, right? And uh, that's what led to the development and the concept with our partners from Takeoff Technologies on this, uh, this micro-fulfillment, hyper-local, co-located uh, fulfillment center, fulfillment engine. Um, so this has been a journey. It's been, it's been quite remarkable to see the last, the last five years particularly, um, how things have gone from uh, a concept and an idea to real life. And now you know, we're sitting here with, uh, actually today marks the seventh live micro-fulfillment center in, uh, in North America right now. So uh, we, turn, we turn the switch on today officially. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's quite interesting. And now it's become, um, let's say, a buzzword everywhere you go. Everyone's talking about micro-fulfillment uh, as a, a strategy. And uh, I think the reality is it's, uh, it was very hard for, for automation companies to get behind it initially because you're talking about taking away our livelihood a little bit, right? You're talking about going from building these large, complex, expensive, automated warehouses to this fundamental shift in ideology where it's like, no, you're still going to build these things just on a smaller scale, just more, more frequently. Right. And so it was an idea for a long time. And, you know, it took us a few years to get the, the first client to get behind it. And now it's, um, let's say in every single conversation, every single blog and every single uh, post I see on, on LinkedIn these days. So it's kind of fun to be the, you know, part of the original uh, group, the architects that kind of created the, the idea with, uh, with our partner takeoff. So. For, for people who aren't familiar, um, and I've studied this model a lot and, and been to a couple of these fulfillment centers, can you just walk us through start, you know, soup to nuts, start to finish, what an average order's journey looks like going through this new model? No such thing as average. Um, I'd say every, 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 every retailer um, it, it is, it is truly unique. Uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, don't get me wrong. Um, but you have a, uh, a basket size in, in the U.S. can vary from the Middle East quite significantly, for instance. Um, I'd say in, in, in the, uh, let's just use North America, you know, the basket sizes are obviously quite larger now uh, in the U.S. market due to COVID. So you can see a basket right now in, in North America that's uh, over 60 articles, easy. Because um, people are, they're, they're hoarding stuff, so to speak. That's one of the questions you have to ask too, is like, what does the normal basket look like in the future? If we revert to a more similar behavior to say uh, our European counterparts, more, fre more frequent shopping, you know, are we gonna do smaller baskets more frequently? Uh, or are we gonna continue to do larger baskets and stock up on articles and just do meal prepping uh, for the week? Uh, that's to be seen, right? Um, what the way that the current MFC is set up is you, you're separated into two into a manual environment and to an automated micro fulfillment environment. And a lot of people ask the question, well, how do you make a decision on what what do you automate? The answer it comes down to uh, the SKU profile, obviously. It doesn't make and the, and the velocity of that article. So does that make sense to put big bulky items? like water and paper products into automation. It's a very expensive storage location. It doesn't make a lot of sense to put a bunch of uh, a super fast A movers in, uh, in automation either because you're eating up capacity. So what we have uh, done with a careful evaluation with the takeoff was to figure, okay, what articles 
what is the what what does the SKU profile look like? What does the assortment need to look like for automation? And how do you handle specialty uh, long tail items that don't make sense to automate because they they're very slow moving, right? And that's when the decision was to co-locate automation in the grocery store, allowing for picking absolutely the most you can possibly out of automation, um, co-locating it with a, a manual uh, racetrack, so to speak, for uh, it's a 95, 97% of the order profile. And then they can go with the long tail for uh, those, those specialty items so that you can offer full assortment and still automate. There's been a lot of argument about um, in the U.S. particularly about what does the assortment look like. We're we're very accustomed to grocery stores with you know 40,000 SKUs, whereas in somewhere like France, you can have something like a 15,000 SKU assortment. And I think that I think that the, the French market has conditionalized consumer behavior, but we're also learning now in COVID that we just want to have things like toilet paper or water or whatever it is. And we're willing to sacrifice the assortment for convenience and just having the product, right? So can we expect to see that consumers are willing to accept a, a lesser assortment? I believe the answer is yes, but uh, time will tell. Um, and then like, you know, for the people at home who haven't seen these fulfillment centers, like what is, what is the setup look like if you can just share like, you know, the shuttle robots and, and the conveyors and how many people operate there versus a normal store, just to paint a picture. Sure. So it's basically a mini warehouse, right? Uh, and it, it, it's when, when you're designing these, you have to consider the end-to-end supply chain, obviously. Um, and are you replenishing the store and the MFC with automation or the manual distribution center? Those all play into the final configuration. But let's just um, use an example of a regional grocery. So you have a, a traditional manual distribution center where they pick to pallet single skew pallets, or excuse me, multiple, uh, assort, uh, rainbow pallets onto a pallet truck, and then they go up and down the aisles in a warehouse, and then they would wrap it and send it to the grocery store. Those usually go into the back room, and then they would go to the, uh, the main store for uh, replenishing the aisles, right? So the, the idea, the premise was to basically do the same function and treat an MFC like a standalone store inside of the store, right? So you have two independent inventories in the same location. It's the best way to track it. And you use that back store like a cross-stocking operation. So you send some products to the store and some to the automated micro-fulfillment center in the back of the store uh, on the other part of the property. From there, um, the, the current staff, which is in all our sites, is being run by the actual grocers employees uh, that are uh, already working at that store are now learning how to use the technology. And so they receive the goods. They're trained on how to properly uh, open the cases to ensure from a quality standpoint that the right article is going in the right tote. Uh, the technology ensures that you are uh, not putting the wrong product in the wrong slot. And it's a lot of, let's say, protectionisms in place to make sure that the overall experience is, is positive for the end consumer and you don't have a lot of, uh, substitutions by accident, right? There is a, uh, it's a much cleaner, much safer way to ensure that the quality of the basket is intact. So they receive those articles, they place approximately between 80 to 85% of all the SKUs inside automation, right? And we have, uh, think about it in a grocery store, you have aisles up and down those aisles, there's a lot of empty open space above the aisles, right? So 
wouldn't it make a lot of sense to maximize the, let's say the density of the building, the cube of the building. That's what we've done in automation. Now we, we typically have an 18 foot clear in a, in a traditional US grocery store. If you can pile up articles all the way to the top of that ceiling, it allows you to squeeze a lot more of the inventory into a, a much tighter, a tighter footprint. You know, in our case, an MFC is anywhere from 10 to 12,000 square feet, depending upon the assortment. So we squeeze all that inventory into this cube. You've got a combination of temperature controlled and ambient storage in that uh, space. Uh, you know, traditionally, this automation goes inside a cooler, or goes inside a dry warehouse. We've actually had to learn how to uh, encapsulate the automation in, in one aisle, for instance, to be able to just to, to temperature control those articles and not uh, require us uh, to build out the building further than we are because it's it's quite expensive to make these modifications to these, these structures. Uh, from there, uh, the orders come in and are the, the totes of those of those products are sent to pickers that are static there. Uh, they've received pre-bagged totes uh, that have been uh, previously put on a uh, an inbound line. Uh, so they call them uh, target totes or order totes. And the orders are, are built by uh, the operators. I mentioned earlier to you that you, you're picking 80 to 85% of the articles. Those totes go to a, uh, a rack, which is powered by a, an AGB, an AMR in the industry, as we call it. That AGB uh, places that order tote in a specific location. Um, the manual area, which makes up approximately say 15% of the uh, order profile, uh, is brought and put in the same location in a, in a rack. So what's happening is there's a consolidation occurring of automated and manual totes. And then what you have also for, for specialty items is a further consolidation where there's a batch picking operation within the grocery store and they would pick those articles from the store and then further consolidate that with the final order as well. Yeah, what's your kind of ideal client? Is it a like a local bodega or is it really the larger groceries or who do you serve today and who can you serve tomorrow? Uh, everybody. Um, our first site was installed in Miami, this regional grocer named Sedanos. Um, you know, the most recent publicly announced partnerships are large box retailers. So Ajo, Ajo Del Hayes uh, was one of the first ones, Wakefern Foods, um, Albertsons, Love Laws in Canada, Woolworths in Australia, and most recently Carrefour and, uh, and in the Middle East. I've uh, all publicly announced uh, our partnerships together and the projects that we're doing. And there's numerous other retailers that we can't talk about right now and aren't ready to talk about what we're doing. But um, it was really shocking for us to see how fast the global adoption of a of an ideology of an ideology that originated in, in North America. It's been typical that the U.S. adopts automation strategy behind Europe, particularly, and we actually led the charge with the idea and now Europe and Asia are, uh, are trying to get on board with the, the idea and replicate the success. So, I mean, it's still very early, but we've, we've, uh, while we're far ahead of everyone else, we've been running for the last two years now and we've learned so much. I mean, we're already in version 3.0 right now, the design. It's amazing how much you can learn in, in a period of time um, and help educate retailers to uh, not make the same mistakes uh, and things to look out for and consider when they're uh, selecting real estate or construction partners. Um, and you know, those learnings have, have been applied to everybody in a way that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny. It makes you realize how small this world is 
you know, there's a lot of similarities how businesses operate from country to country across the globe. While the consumer behavior is different, you can really apply those learnings across the across the board. So uh, a lot a lot has changed on the technology side, and particularly like the introduction of AGVs. Everyone's like, well, why would you add that complexity of an automatically guided vehicle into a this small warehouse? And it's like things as simple as columns in a building. You think about the inflexibility of putting conveyor on the ground, right? Um, by introducing a automatically guided vehicle, we have a lot more possibilities to build in existing buildings with less limitations because of uh, collisions and uh, impediments. So it's it comes down to ROI, yes, and, but part of the ROI consideration is construction schedule and uh, and when you can go live, how fast you can go live. So in essence, it can also be scaled down to the local stores, but is there a certain amount of order size that um, groceries need to do in order for your technology to be useful? Or um, do you see this being used in, in even the, really the local small, small shops? Um, so there is definitely a point where I think that automation does and doesn't make sense. I think that what we're seeing basically, um, if you, one microfulfillment center does not serve just one store, just uh, to be clear. We are seeing, I'd say on average, if you're doing less than 1,500, 1, 1,000 to 1,500 orders a week, the ROI becomes more unattractive. I mean, it definitely still makes sense. If you have the capital and you know you have to do something, then absolutely. But there's the, the manual picking makes sense to, to a point. Um, now, you, obviously, you're, you're not necessarily making money by picking manually. You're, you're eroding your, your profits or you're going to have to charge consumers for the service, right? Um, but the goal with automation was to offer same price and no fees, similar to what the French market uh, intelligence has told us. That's, that's what the consumers have become accustomed to. So maybe we're willing to pay a certain convenience fee for delivery, but I think that the goal is to offer same price, no fees for, uh, for pickup for sure. Um, the traditional solution uh is has worked for the regional as well as the big box guys um we are seeing a a, a request for potentially a, a little bit bigger but it comes down not much to orders but order lines that's what really is what's driving what the automation can and cannot handle how, how many movements it has to do so i think that the the, the two years of design efforts actually were quite uh important in building a solution that off the shelf really did what we set out to do. Um, and you have some people ideology that say, look, well, I want to build a system that say do 500 orders a day versus one that does 650, 750, 800, a thousand, because it's easier for me to find property or buildings. And I'd rather put them in more frequent locations than building a little bit bigger and have more expensive construction build out costs and, and potential uh, exposure to last mile delivery costs. So it really comes down to the supply chain strategy. That's why I tell everybody, you know, from a retail perspective, that it's not just the, the, the C-suite trying to uh, return investment for their, their investors or the supply chain organization trying to solve for last mile uh, and potentially take away um, same store sales from the retail store because you've now pushed those stores to a, a distribution center. So everyone has to be in lock and step together and, and come up with a strategy that makes sense for their business. Bill, you've mentioned, um, you know, buy online, pick up in store, BOPIS, whatever they, whatever uh, acronyms are out there for, for this click and collect. Um, what is the breakdown like in the U.S. Uh, with your partners and um, 
And what is the break compared that to, you know, what we see in France with like 5,000 different um, of these stations. So it's like the mix between pickup and store and delivery. The mix. Yeah. Uh, it really, honestly, it varies. I think it's got to do with uh, behavior. I think that we're seeing a lot more click and collect. Um, the original idea, the logic behind here was to deploy uh, lockers to to locations, to other stores, and to potentially other partners uh, to, for pickup in convenient locations. That still proves to be financially the most attractive, um, I'd say, solution for retailers the delivery piece is uh is a wild card right i think like in, in the case of takeoff they, they had some partnerships with a few third-party crowdsourcing apps that were utilizing labor to do delivery that way they also have you know existing networks of, of trucks to do things but largely there was initial focus on the the, the bopis or click and collect model so uh but i think the delivery um probably is 20 to 30 percent of the um the transaction most of it's is click and collect still today yeah i had a question on um health i mean one of the main things people are talking about these days is health and safety of workers um, it's something that's come up a lot also from the, the meatpacking industry but also in terms of fulfillment centers how does canap and these dark grocery fulfillments um give consumers peace of mind that health and safety of the people working there is is uh, is being taken care of so what's, what's interesting with the idea of, of automation is that you, you try to limit the number of touches, right? Uh, when, you, when you receive a product and put it on a shelf in a traditional grocery store, um, there's potential cross-contamination because people, people are grabbing the, uh, the article uh, on the shelf, evaluating if this is the one they want, they might be putting it back. Whereas in the automated world, we receive things in case quantity, which is from the manufacturer. It's then being put into a tote by one individual who's been obviously uh, has done proper sanitation, washing their hands and things. Uh, place those into a basically it's a vault. I mean, you can't get into this thing because we protect the, the operators from from potential any exposure to injury with uh, safety precautions. So you don't necessarily have the risk of having it touched multiple times by multiple consumers uh, before it ends up going home with you. So I think that that in itself offers a, a piece of line that a traditional grocery shopping experience can't offer you, right? Okay, so I'm going to transition over to, you know, Bill and I connected um, a couple months ago because I've been just fascinated. I, I was in Tel Aviv visiting, um, you know, a competitor at the takeoff called Fabric. And it was in the middle of downtown Tel Aviv in a parking garage and I was running around this parking garage trying to find this fulfillment center that I'd read about in the news and I just happened to be on vacation out there um, and I just like looking around for it and showed these, this parking attendant this YouTube video and he's like, oh yeah, fabric, okay. And he just like let me in. Um, and then I just got obsessed with this whole, this whole world that Bill lives day in and day out. So let's talk about, you know, now that we, we know that, you know, this is definitely not only like a cost effective way, but just a, a healthier, you know, a safer way of um, amidst this crazy period. What, what do you see the future of kind of um, vacant mall retail? And we've seen Amazon kind of start to snatch up some of this mall retail. Uh, you know, they have a former Toys R Us and a, bunch, a portfolio of a bunch of other locations that they've um, leased. And they've also bought leases from other grocers like Fairway that have gone bankrupt. So take us to like where we are today 
it, uh, we're in a very crazy time. Uh, what do you see the future of this, all this vacant mall retail? There was a recent article that was suggesting that a lot of it should end up as kind of online delivery fulfillment space. And Amazon has even gone so far as to convert some of the stores that they were planning on opening separate from, you know, Whole Foods and, and just use them as straight up dark stores to satisfy Whole Foods customers. Uh, wh what do you see as the model going forward um, from, from this kind of retail perspective? So my take is um, grocery retailers saw what uh, Amazon was capable in the traditional retail uh, environment, right? And they were already starting to feel the, the impacts with um, uh, consumer product goods being procured through Amazon. So you're seeing this potential shrinking of the center store of grocery, right? Um, so that the executives in the grocery space were very mindful of um, potential risk to their business. And they, they started to realize um, last few years, in my opinion, that they could leverage their real estate assets to take on Amazon's cost to serve. And that's Amazon, in my experience, or from, from my intel um, across the industry, is that it's all about consumer shopping experience, not necessarily about profitability. And it's very hard to compete with, right? In uh, a very razor thin margin. Traditional grocers, even even non-traditional, so you got the the Albertsons, the Krogers, the the WalMarts of the world have huge footprints uh, of of stores. I mean, Walmart alone thinks got five thousand uh, grocery stores that can can touch consumers. I think Kroger's at uh, almost three thousand approximately. I think Albertsons is 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 almost two thousand. So um, if you compare that to the Whole Foods, which I believe was around eight hundred or so locations. They have a, an opportunity to really capitalize on um, underutilized real estate assets. And I think that that will make these guys uh, in that space very competitive to solve or try to solve for um, the change in consumer shopping behavior in the last mile, right? Um, the, there's been a lot of speculation on, on what, uh, what Amazon was going to do. You had the, the Toys R Us bankruptcy and, you know, was Amazon going to go after those assets? You have now the, you know, the, the, the story has been the, the JC Penney, um, bankruptcy and is Amazon making a move to try and, uh, capitalize on that situation and, and consume up those, those storefronts to convert it to, uh, whether it be apparel or some type of apparel slash, you know, last mile fulfillment uh, solution who knows uh, you definitely can't ever count them out um, they they are innovative and they will find a way to succeed and um, so I do believe that the the grocers have a jump on them and if they move quickly they'll be able to kind of seize and capitalize on that uh, the current shoppers that are available but if, if retailers just elect to kind of wait and see what happens and see how some of these concepts and ideas work out, I don't think it's going to be uh, a strong long-term strategy. Um, it's the retailers who today are willing to try and fail that will end up winning the battle. So what, I mean, what kind of formats do you think this takes on? Do you think they, if you were, you know, Albertsons or Wake for any of these big, bigger um, chains and you're looking to not only satisfy the growth and demand as we you know 
are, are hitting this recession, you know, there's people are shop, shifting away from restaurants towards grocers. Uh, how do you, you know, do you open up just pure dark fulfillment centers, like, you know, no customers allowed and put, put micro fulfillment centers in them? Does that kind of, is that kind of antithetical to the whole approach or do you just open up more small stores or, you know, what, what does that look like um, if this continues on a much longer period? Yeah, I think it's, I think I saw an article uh, or a study done by CBRE um, the last few months talking about that. There's already a shift towards building smaller retail grocery stores, particularly. Um, you know, the question is, a lot of these retailers are, are anchored tenants and may own, maybe even own the shopping center. So the real estate's not going anywhere. So how do you uh, how do you repurpose those assets to to do more? Um, as it relates to a, a sales and revenue perspective. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think that whether it's dark store, I mean, I know that you went into a quote unquote dark store for, um, for, uh, for takeoff a few months ago, Matt, um, in, in New Jersey. And while it's not quote unquote true dark store, it's, it's effectively what the, it's, it's what the concept would be if you were to convert a, a traditional retail store into it. Um, the productivity of a dark store or an MFC is largely the same. It comes down to footprint and it comes down to, in my opinion, assortment. And in a dark store, you can put more articles inside automation. The argument to that is there is a finite line between cost and return on investment. And you have to kind of weigh what's more important offering every, every article that I can offer um, our customer or to operate those, let's say those 10 to 15,000 SKUs that are represent 80, 85% of all my transactions, maybe even more than up to 90%. So um, necessarily building a dark store bigger doesn't solve anything unless you're building horsepower behind it to just produce more. The other argument would be that um, you know the dark store is probably set up to serve a larger uh, geographic location, so then you have to consider the impact of, uh, of of last mile costs. So you have this, you know, I, I think again the only way you're gonna you're gonna know is that these retailers are gonna try multiple different iterations. I mean, cannot you know we we have a very distinct. Uh, mindset on what the, the supply chain looks like in the future. I think that it comes down to the existing distribution network will be, let's say, revitalized with more flexible technologies to be able to solve for store replenishment and for e-commerce next day, let's say. Um, that's already happening with us right now. I mean, the, the technology is behind the MFC for takeoff is what we're putting in gigantic warehouses that are doing, you know, uh, we're doing like 250,000 cases of product a day out of it, for instance, versus a facility that I'm only doing 500 orders a day. So uh, there is a, there's a flexibility. Then you have what we're calling the, the urban fulfillment center, suburban fulfillment center, where it's kind of this in between, um, it's similar to the New Jersey site you visited. 
I would be typically building that larger because you could put that in the outside of, let's say outside of the New York, right? And you can fill a very densely populated urban market with a larger facility. They can't necessarily build small micro fulfillment inside Manhattan because it's, it's very expensive and very constrained. And then you have the MFC. So I think those, those three approaches are going to, are going to basically define and make up the future grocery supply chain and um, the dark stores and existing real estate is going to become part of the MFC or urban fulfillment center model, in my opinion. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I, we're, we're coming up on, uh, um, on time here, but I just kind of want to close out and, and start, sort of understand, paint a picture for our listeners, kind of just from the labor perspective and the cost perspective, you know, everyone's kind of, I think, adopted Instacart right now because there's just no other show in town. Um, where, you know, in your model, it, it you know, and it, it could potentially work with an Instacart, right? It could power an Instacart order. What, what does, you know, the breakdown of costs look like as far as the shopping and picking of the, of the items versus the savings on the, on the last mile? So, you know, we're automating with the MFC, the picking of it, right? So, you know, 85% of that order is um, being picked you know, with the shuttle technology. And then, um, you know, we still have the, the driving component. So I guess where, where are we, where are you, where are retailers really saving the most? Uh, loaded question. I think that, um, productivity is, is always an important factor, but transportation is always, um, we, we have the kind of saying, it's like, we're trying to we're trying to squeeze up productivity in in the four walls of distribution or in a, in a store, um, but in the reality, those those represent you know 25 30 percent of the total cost. Transportation for for retailers has always been the largest uh, thing to consider. Um, that necessarily isn't the case in e-grocery anymore because uh, again you're going from free picking labor to now you have to pay an associate to to uh, to pick that order. So I think that it comes down to proximity, Matt. I mean, I know it's not really answering your question probably the way you want me to answer it, but it comes down to um, where these where these MFCs or, or urban MFCs are, are, are placed, um, how frequently they're spread out, and you know, uh, that will determine transportation costs. Um, there's nothing you can do about the, the picking. The picking cost is the picking cost, and there's not much more you can do um, when you have constraints like building clarity, right? You, know, you can only pick so many units per hour as a human being. And even in the introduction of, of robotic picking, robots are not there to replace the picker, but rather to increase the number of production hours, right? In a, in a microfilament or urban fulfillment center. Uh, and, and a robot can't do what a human can do, not not to the scale and magnitude, not not today. I mean, and we're obviously leading, we, we lead the charge in this space and we're quite well versed in robotic picking. Uh, so it's about, you know, it's right now labor is everything. And you have a consumer who's been conditioned right now to pay for delivery costs. So question will become is how long before consumers are not comfortable paying for that? Or are they always going to be willing to pay some type of, transactional fee for for that convenience i don't know i don't know i mean and all the different executives i talk to uh, it's 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 really um it's hard to tell but 
I think that at a minimum now with the tools available, we're arming retailers to, um, to take on this, this new normal, so to speak. Right. I suppose one thing I found interesting was that you said, um, uh, moving forward, you think grocers, uh, consumers are looking for less choices or more willing to accept less choices, which I, I don't know how to feel for me. For me, I feel like there's, um, one of the benefits of going online is that, uh, these online retailers have far more choices that brick and mortar can't offer. Um, or maybe that's just what I'm seeing here in Switzerland. I mean, look at someone like a, an Aldi or a Lidl. I mean, their assortment is what, 10 to 15,000 articles. Now, do I need to have 30 variations of macaroni and cheese? Probably not. Uh, I would probably be okay with 15, but imagine that on, on, uh, across the entire spectrum. How many products have all these different, I mean, in the US, you know, we're huge drinkers of, of, of soda products, right? Uh, now, now the, 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 the sparkling waters and, and flavored waters is, is uh, overtaking you know, the, the sodas. Um, how many soda variations do you have? Uh, you know, do you need to have two different versions of lime? One's, one grapefruit, one pink grapefruit, one diet, one uh, low sugar. I mean, I, again, I, I think that you'd be amazed probably on how the assortment can be reduced just by eliminating a few of these choices. And I think there will, there will always be some products that will have a, a high degree of assortment of variation of, uh, available, but there are some products that are going to, are going to be forever changed. I think in COVID-19. We're going to have to pay for convenience one way or another. Yeah. You know what? I mean, absolutely. I mean, but I think, I think right now with the retailer, if you can squeeze out productivity and pick at, you know, 10 X at automation, you know, the, the traditional one and a half, 2% margins can be, further optimized, right? And if, and if you had that fee on top of it, then yes, you can make even more money in principle. The question is, what happens if you start with fees today, what's gonna start happening is everyone's gonna be fighting for that consumer and they're gonna keep chopping and chopping and chopping to a point where they, they're gonna get back to uh, the margins that are, again, not not as attractive. So you know, the, take, the takeoff team is, has been made pretty clear based on their analysis. They think that we can get upwards of you know four to 6% margin on a basket versus the traditional one and a half two percent all right well thanks so much bill for for the time and hope you stay safe out there in atlanta yeah enjoy talking to you guys thanks for tuning in if you like what you hear please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast if you want to know more about food hack and our global network of food entrepreneurs it's foodhack.global or reach out to host a food tech meetup in your city and if you're curious to get a first-hand look at the latest trends at the intersection of food and tech in the U.S., check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with no U and subscribe to the free weekly newsletter.